welcome to the BCMA podcast. I'm your host, Lorenda Calvert. Thanks for joining us today. Would you mind introducing yourself to our listeners? Okay. Yeah. Thank you so much, first of all, for having me. Um, my name is Elin. Um, she, her, and they, them pronouns. I'm a Chinese Canadian writer, poet, and literary translator based in Vancouver. Um, I specialize in translating Chinese poetry. And my first book of poetry translations from Chinese, um, The Lantern and the Night Moth, is coming out next year. And I'm also known for my translations of the Chinese modern feminist poet, Chou Ji. That's amazing. How did you get into doing uh, literary translations? I have um, been writing creatively in English for a long time. And like since I was a teenager and it's something that I've always been drawn to. And at the same time, you know, I grew up bilingual in Mandarin and English, but mm -hmm. it never occurred to me that I could actually translate. Um, but later on, as a part of um, my interest in like non-Western, non-Eurocentric literary traditions, and also kind of changing um, kind of movements within publishing to like decolonize and consider kind of other kinds of culturally um, important kind of literary traditions, I became interested in kind of drawing on that influence. So that's how I got into literary translation. And for those listening who might not know, do you mind telling us what makes literary translations different from other forms of translations? Yeah, so literary translations is the translation of literature. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, there are many types of translations, for example, like academic or like commercial, or for other kinds of like, technical kind of purposes. Mm -hmm. Literary translation is more about the translation of creative works, like fiction, poetry, drama, graphic novels, children's literature, and so on. Um, so it's really kind of um, a creative form where you are trying to kind of translate the spirit, and the emotional experience of reading a literary work into another language, which makes it, um, it can make it more challenging um, than other types of translation. Absolutely. I'm sure there's folks listening who can imagine um, perhaps while traveling, using Google Translate and trying to communicate um, and, and Google Translate not getting uh, the essence or the spirit of what they're trying to say, because it's only doing a direct translation word to word, which doesn't always, um, come across or doesn't always translate the way that you intend. Uh, would that be a, a good way to, to provide an example of what that literary translation is doing? It's making that, um, making that, uh, that spirit and that essence of the, the material, getting that properly captured while you're translating. Yeah, it's very different from mm -hmm. just like a machine translation and putting something mm -hmm. into Google uh, because languages don't match up exactly. So you're navigating things like different words, you know, different grammatical syntax, mm -hmm. different um, kind of structures, um, 
different cultural contexts, you know, and also mm -hmm. um, for many of the poets, I translate considering like the historical context, the social political context, mm -hmm. and kind of everything needs to be translated, not just mm -hmm. the literal words on the page. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, I appreciate that myself as someone who is new to the term of literary translations, but also I've probably encountered literary translations um, in my lifetime as well. And I'm sure that there's listeners today um, who appreciate that uh, and you uh, sharing that information with us. I wanna thank you. Um, and some listeners might recognize your name or might, might know from the description um, what we're talking about today. Um, we did cover this in our, our recent Muse News podcast. Um, about the British Museum and their copyright infringement, their theft of your work in, um, I believe, their most recent exhibition. Can you introduce us to what happened? Yeah, so a few <laughs> weeks ago, I found out um, that the British Museum had used my translations of um, Chojin's poetry mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in their recent major exhibit, China's Hidden Century. And they used a poem um, over 20 lines in full, along with various excerpts in six different formats at the physical exhibition. Wow. You know, without contacting me, without credit, without payment. Um, and also in a book that um, had partial credit, but left out mm -hmm. credits in one spot as well. And um, this had also been happening for like over a month before I found out that my translations had been taken. So I was very shocked. Do you know how they got access to your translations? The translations um, were published online mm. um, and the LA Review of Books, um, they have a like a partner site mm -hmm. called China Channel that had published many translations mm -hmm. and also in a literary publication called Asymptote as well as my website. So um, it must have been taken, I'm guessing, from one of these sources because sure. that's where it was. Yeah. That's, and I mean, I mean, this is a, the BCMA is a museum association. This is a museum podcast. If you're listening to this, you probably know museums. You absolutely understand the size of the British Museum and also just the the shadow that they um, put on the, the whole museum industry uh, itself. That it, it is incredibly uh, shocking, but also, I mean, not shocking that a museum would do this and a museum of this size would do this. How, how did you find out about the the British Museum's copyright? Like, how did this information get to you? Yeah, so um, I had published my first translation of the children's poetry back in 2021. Mm -hmm. And when they came out, they were quite well received. Um, the translations on Asymptote's website mm -hmm. was I think the second most read translations of that year, you know. So oh. I'm kind of known for translating her poetry mm. among like Chinese literature circles and kind of translators and readers. Like people mm. have known that. And mm. I have been working on in Kalen's translation. So as soon as that exhibit, you know, kind of came out, mm -hmm. I started hearing from multiple people around me 
both people I know in London and also just online scholars who were like, mm-hmm. oh, you know, the British Museum has an exhibit, you know, on this time period, the late Qing Dynasty, it featured Cho Jing, it even had her poetry, you know, do you know about it? And of course, you know, as a translator who's specializing in this poet, I would look, mm-hmm. you know, and and then like, at the time, I was also literally writing a personal essay about translating her work for my upcoming book. And I was writing about, you know, how BIPOC translators are marginalized mm-hmm. in publishing. Mm-hmm. And the next oh. day, you know, I discover, like, she photos and videos that the translations the museum used for mine. So, oh my yeah, God. it was just quite a ridiculous situation to be in absolutely and also just the like this is exactly what I'm right this is what I'm writing this essay about and like here it is it is a direct example of the the topic like that's I mean that's right like kismet like yeah and okay so you found out and you reached out to the British Museum I, I assume to be like hello this is my work um what was their response like? Yeah, so for context, mm. um, there's been a movement over the last few years on social media and kind of in publishing called hashtag name the translator that mm. asks everyone to always mm. credit and acknowledge the labor of translators mm-hmm. because it's like an ongoing problem within like institutions, academia, publishing, that they mm-hmm. often forget or kind of neglect to mention the translator. Mm-hmm. So when this happened, um, as someone who has an online presence, mm-hmm. I, you know, tweeted the British Museum and had put hashtag name the translator. Mm-hmm. The response was not great. Mm. So the first email tried to present it as if they had just forgotten to credit me and not that they hadn't sought permission. They oh. were just like, oh, we oh. forgot to list you in the list of translators. And we appreciate, you know, all the people who have helped make this exhibit happen. And I was like, excuse me? Even I, you didn't, I didn't yeah. help. I was never <laughs> consulted. Yeah. And, Which and is, then. Yeah. Sorry, I'm just, I'm like then, aghast, aghast that, yeah, please continue. I know, I know, exactly. It's just, yeah. And then they offered to, you know, send me a permission form. Mm. And the permission form email, though, kind of stressed how they're like an academic institution, how contributors let them use their work for free or at a very mm. low cost. And I was like, I mean, if you had asked me properly, you know, before, yeah. I would have, you know, considered that as a reasonable request, you know, like, I understand it's an institution, but like, sure. you're coming to me, you know, after, like, you had, you know, used my work. And, you know, for this exhibit, they were selling tickets, they were selling mm. books, they were selling mm. audio guides, and two researchers, had received a grant of over 700,000 pounds Wow! from a humanities council in the UK to research for four years. So like, do they have, you know, any excuse 
And it's also just so anyway. like we're an we're an academic institution. Um, we can't pay you a lot of money, but also we're coming to you afterwards and telling you we're an academic institution and we can't pay you a lot of money. So just sign this permission slip and don't ask for any money because we can't. Like that's just again just like a guess that that is like if they wanted to use your poem, how hard? Oh, sorry, not even your poem. Your if they wanted to use your translation, how hard would it have been just to reach out beforehand? How long, how long have exactly. they been working on this exhibition? Um, just even, I mean, and anyone, anyone listening with exhibition backgrounds, just for the installation that would have been um, planned for quite a while, the installation itself, what was going to be um, included, the contents, the themes. If you're having an audio tour produced, you have to have time to produce that. If you're selling tickets, there's marketing for it. Like this isn't something they whipped up in a month. Um, and they, you know, just in all of the chaos forgot, like it, that's, it's, it's like shocking. Um, which is the tone, the tone of my, the tone of my, um, the tone of my interview for this podcast is just like shocked. Uh, so they reached out and they were like, please sign this permission form. We can't pay you any money for it. Um, this is, you know, retroactive from when we'd already been open for a month and then we'll, we'll put your name up. Yeah, so the first email was like, oh, like we forgot, you know, to put your name. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you. And then the second was like, oh, like we can send you a permission form, but like other people, like all let us use for free or like mm -hmm. very cheaply. And, mm -hmm. you know, every email I was just like, could you just be sincerely apologetic, you know, yeah. rather than kind of making it worse. And then they were like 24 hours later, we haven't heard from you. Like we have changed our minds and we have removed both the Chinese and the English. And we'll just pay you for the book portion. I sure. didn't reply within the 24 hours because there's an eight hour time, you know, time difference between yeah. Vancouver and London. And given the previous email, you know, I wanted to seek out, you know, union advice. Like I'm a member of Society of Authors, which is a union for writers and translators. You know, yeah. naturally I wanted some, you know, contract advice, legal advice. But they were just like, you haven't replied, and we have removed all your translations. And so, like, at that point, you know, there were more emails, and then eventually they're mm -hmm. like, oh, we'll pay you, you know, rich actually for the exhibit and the book, but we will not reinstate, and we will not credit you, because you will not be in the exhibit. And I was just like why are you so hostile like yeah yeah um because like removing it removing it and then um, and then being like you know we'll we'll pay you for it but we're it's not going back like that very much to me feels like a bully taking their ball home rather than playing fair like you know I, I didn't I don't like this so I'm just I'm going to remove the whole situation and everyone suffers um it just it, like it just feels like so again for an exhibition that was probably planned for quite a while and I'm sure that this was a part of their you know plans to just it just seems so 
bullyish. So like immature of that's the reaction. Also not sincerely apologizing just feels so immature of a reaction. Um, when, when you could just acknowledge the mistake that has been made and try to find ways to rectify it. Um, so, so where are you now? Yeah. Thank you. So where are you now at the British Museum? So after all that happened, yeah. And um, I started consulting, you know, a lawyer and there were more emails mm -hmm. where I, you know, asked them for like reinstatement of the Chinese and English with full credit and result mm -hmm. payments and like an actual mm -hmm. like sincere apology that explains, mm -hmm. you know, what went wrong, how were they kind of avoid it again. And they refused twice. Wow while they kind of went around, you know, kind of publicly telling journalists that they removed the translations in good faith, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, I had really kind of no choice, but to kind of escalate, you know. Yeah. So, so then I started a crowd justice fundraiser to oh. take legal action. Yeah. And um, that's, um, fundraiser reached the minimum wow. to file a complaint wow. um, a week or two ago because so many people were, you know, upset by what the sure. British Museum did. Like, I think like over like 600 or 700 people like donated because, wow. you know, everyone who's a writer, translator, you know, yeah. creator, I would think that they would be worried you know, about this kind of behavior from such yeah. a large museum. Absolutely. So, yeah, so that's kind of where we're at. And basically lawyers are now involved and a bunch of things are happening that I can't discuss yet. But sure, sure. I'm still hoping, you know, that there will be some kind of accountability from the museum. Absolutely. Um, I, I, I want to talk about copyright and also apologies um, and, and recognizing mistakes. But, but first, before I ask questions about that, I just, it also saddens me that this translation of Chu Jing, the, the, her poetry is just removed and that it's now being not shared with visitors at the museum. Did they comment at all about that? Is there other, um, is there other translations or other ways to, to, experience the poetry that's included in the exhibition or is it just been struck completely it's very frustrating they have removed both the chinese and the english wow which makes it kind of very upsetting for me given yeah. especially that it's an exhibit that's being visited by a lot of chinese tourists yeah um many of whom would have no problem understanding the original yeah you know? so it really does feel like rather than actually you know working with me to mm -hmm. solve the problem they unilaterally kind of took action mm -hmm. especially because I had no say you know in the first place when mm -hmm. they had used my work mm -hmm. and now again like I you know want to be able to actually have some agency in the situation sure and absolutely instead have you know them kind of just remove all the translations yeah and the original 
yeah. especially given that so much of my work is to like you know highlight this kind of feminist poet from history who has been yeah. overlooked yeah absolutely can you tell us about her yeah so Chu Jing was a feminist poet living in at the end of the 19th century and into mm -hmm. the early 20th century um, she left behind over 200 poems when she died and she died as a martyr who chose not to escape when a revolution to mm. overthrow an opp oppressive government failed and she uh, spent her whole life advocating for women's rights mm. um, and challenging kind of gender roles mm. um, and she wrote many poems about themes and issues that I consider to be still kind of very interesting and relevant today. Um, mm. Poems about women's friendship, about queer platonic relationships, about cross-dressing, um, about kind of empowering women and kind of marginalized genders, mm. and things that I think kind of, yeah, continue to really resonate. Mm -hmm. and um, she passed away, you know, over 120 years ago, but there's still not like a book lived translation of her poetry mm -hmm. into English because unfortunately, women writers and poets mm -hmm. tend to be underrepresented in kind of translation. So um, a big part of my work is trying to um, introduce her poetry into English mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. inform kind of global conversations about feminism so that they can learn about this poet from Chinese history who mm -hmm. uh, was very kind of progressive and ahead of her time. Mm -hmm. oh, it's, it, she sounds amazing. And it's just, again, such a shame that uh, the British Museum's response would be to remove remove her, her poem from and your translation from the exhibition, just to remove that content so that people don't get to experience her. Um, and also just like such a, a strong, powerful female poet um, who can be just inspirational to continue like fighting against, not not to call the British Museum a, fa you know, a fascist regime, but, um, you know, fighting against injustices. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, ironically, the exhibit is about the late Qing which mm. was a period in Chinese history where there was a lot of trauma from imperialism <laughs> involving the British Empire. And oh. uh, there are some objects in that exhibit also with, quote, questionable origins. So you're just yeah. like, you're, continue you're continuing. The British Museum is continuing to do this. Um, Britain is continuing to do that. Like, that's, ugh. Yeah, you so know, that yeah. makes it feel extra disrespectful. Absolutely, absolutely. But but as I said, I did want to talk about copyright and also apologies. Um, so copyright yeah. is an issue that should be important to all museums of all sizes. Um, this this isn't something that just large museums encounter. Uh, this is something museums and using museums of the broadest terms. That's you know the BCMA uses museums, and we mean art galleries, nature centers. We mean all of the organizations, all the staff listening to this podcast, we can't show under that museum umbrella. 
Um, what is something you hope museums take away from this experience in regards to copyright? I think it's really important for museums to recognize that mm -hmm. translation is copyrighted. And specifically, I'm talking here about literary translation. Mm -hmm. um, I'm very surprised that I have to explain this, but it seems some people assume that if you have the original permission mm -hmm. of the author, then you also have rights to the translation. But actually, um, in general, um, translated works are also copyrighted in their own mm. kind of way as mm. translations, because mm -hmm. it's the translations that you're reading, not the original works. Mm -hmm. So when you publish, you know, or use a translation in any format as a part of an exhibit in any medium, you have to seek out, you know, the copyright holder if it's mm -hmm. copyrighted. Mm -hmm. um, in Cho Jing's case, the poet um, has been dead for over 120 years. So mm -hmm. her original Chinese poetry is in the public domain. Mm -hmm. But as a living poet and translator, my translations are copyrighted. Mm -hmm. And I feel like they're is kind of maybe a lack of awareness from certain mm -hmm. folks about that distinction. So mm -hmm. I would say it's really important, you know, for museums to recognize that and be careful mm -hmm. and to have a clear process for, mm -hmm. you know, seeking kind of translations mm -hmm. and kind of the permission and making sure that it's credited properly, making sure that translators are paid properly, making sure that it's handled with respect. Mm -hmm. um, this process, like what happened with the British Museum, kind of re really left me wondering about kind of what the copyright process is at the British mm -hmm. Museum mm -hmm. and kind of what to expect in general with institutions and kind of museums, because I wouldn't, expect this to be kind of the norm mm -hmm. yeah no, absolutely absolutely and i i um i come to museums from a, a education background so for programming field trips that that's where i come from um so the copyright for for things that would be in an exhibition are things that i'm not familiar with um and i, I will seek out some information that i can add about copyright um it, just in general to the description of this podcast for organizations out there um, for museum staff who might not have a background who might not encountered um, copyright but now they're in a position or a role at an organization where they are building an exhibition and working with um, literally literary content and are now thinking what is my copyright process what does our organization use what do we do and how are we doing it I'd like to make sure that we're not just leaving you leaving this podcast thinking God, what do we? What are we supposed to be doing? Um, I'd like to be to give you some resources. So I, I hope to add that in the description of this podcast because um, I think what you said was perfect. That there needs to be a plan in place. There needs to be a policy. You need to be as an organization thinking. If you don't have one already, how are you giving um, recognition? What is your copyright process? How are you getting that content into your your programs, your exhibition, and what does that look like? As well as what is compensation look like? 
So thank you. Um, I, this kind of tied into my second question, which was for those looking to work with translators, what would you hope they remember? And I, I feel like you did um, draw on some points, but just because I had said I was going to ask it, are there things that you would like organizations who are working with literary translators to remember? I think it's really important to remember that you know, literary transition is an art form in its own mm -hmm. right. You mm -hmm. know, we've talked about it being copyrighted. It is also just, you know, a form of creative writing and mm -hmm. it should be treated as if you are working with like an original work written in mm -hmm. English. Mm -hmm. So um, the same kinds of things would also apply and um, it's very important to acknowledge, you know, the labor, the specialized skills, mm -hmm. the cultural knowledge, mm -hmm. the various kind of things that are needed, you know, to kind of create a literary translation and therefore, you know, ensure that translators are credited. Yeah, they're mm -hmm. paid well, that mm -hmm. um, permission is thought, you know, that is displayed sensitively and kind of so on. So, um, I would urge people working with literary translators to learn a little bit more about mm -hmm. how this kind of process works and um, also to kind of familiarize themselves with like what a translator does. Mm -hmm. I, I, and I would also stress if, if a translator says no, then that's it. You, um, not that, not that uh, I imagine, or I mean, I hope there aren't organizations who are embarking on um, getting permission and not getting permission and then going ahead anyways. But just, just to say it, um, if you seek permission and you are told no, then that's it. Um, th you have to respect the answer given. Um, I did want to, I had talked about this earlier, just the way that the British Museum handled this um both in their communications to you directly but also on social media was so poorly done um in my opinion in in not ju not just in like they shouldn't have done this in the first place but just in the way that they talked about this experience and also the way that they communicated with you like there seemed to be no as you said no no direct apology they didn't seem um to be remorseful for their actions. Um, and while I want to stress that for listeners, that if you in encounter a mistake that you have made, acknowledge the mistake. I just wanted to know if you had any thoughts to add upon that about how poorly they handled just recognizing and apologizing. Yeah, it is very, very kind of frustrating mm -hmm. to have that happen, you know, in both kind of public communication and also in emails like obviously mistakes happen it's not good mm -hmm. that it had but if they had you know taken steps to just work with me to fix it mm -hmm. it would not have dragged as long as it has mm -hmm. and that's really kind of made it more kind of frustrating mm -hmm. and I think it is unfortunately like maybe a sign that the British Museum, you know, hasn't really learned from its kind of history yeah. of, you know, housing various stolen objects and kind yes. of yeah. its colonial history. Yeah. yeah. So 
I think, you know, it really needs to do a lot of work in that area. It's mm-hmm. kind of what I've noticed. It was also just not being very transparent. And, mm-hmm. you know, in one of the emails, I even asked them, like, to explain, like, what had happened. Um, like, for example, you know, was there a list of kind of things that they were using that was copyrighted that, you know, where they had made a mistake, you know, mm-hmm. and kind of admitted, you know, kind of seeking my transition or some kind of like error and, you know, mm-hmm. type entry, or was there just no process and they would not answer. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, I have gotten no explanation of how this happened, despite mm-hmm. the fact that it's such a large exhibit involving so many people and a lot of funding and it's the British Museum. Yeah. Instead, there's just a lot of, you know, like kind of innocent mistake, human error. Yeah. But mm. what does that mean? You yeah, know, like, where, where along the way? Avoid it again. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like it's, it's someone. Yeah. It, someone's found your translation and put it in there. It's not just like whoops. Like, the, many many steps along the way, someone could have stopped and thought or there could have been a written policy or procedure that would have prompted you to stop and think like where are we giving credit have we gotten permission have we done this properly um it's not just like whoops like it didn't just it wasn't just one person who you know accidentally entered something wrong in an excel sheet um and then even if it was when you when you brought when you reached out to them for them to just like the, just the response that they gave as we just covered was just such a it's just such a bad it's just such a bad way to handle it um yeah completely yeah. just t- like they had so many opportunities you provided them so many opportunities to rectify it to address it and they just handled it incredibly poorly um that's one of the the takeaways i hope that listeners um consider is just in addition to knowing about literary translation, um, knowing about um, uh, having a copyright procedure, just think about what your response is when someone brings um, an error to your attention, when someone brings something to your attention that you need to rectify, that you're doing it, um, that you're doing it well, that you're considering the response um and that you consider an apology and an genuine a, a, a genuine honest apology um exactly was, yeah thank you thank you those were all the questions i had was there anything you'd like to leave us with or anything you'd like to go back on um anything you want to summarize up anything um i think i just want to say that uh, yeah, like it's really important, you know, to treat translators well mm-hmm. and to acknowledge, you know, the work and the labor that goes into translation. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's important when, you know, misla- mistakes like these happen that museums take, you know, concrete steps to correct it mm-hmm. and to, mm-hmm. you know, sincerely apologize and to actually explain how they're not going to do this again in the future Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, rather than just being like vaguely you know we're going to look into what happened which is is very kind of 
vague and non-committal and mm-hmm. makes it sound and, like they haven't learned much yeah know? that kind of response is very much the like we just want to get we just want to get rid of you we just want to stop having to talk to you about it so we're just going to say we'll look into it but then we never explain what that means we never follow up with you and say we figured it out it's just very much like end of story we'll look into it yeah yeah so it is just that's been one of the most kind of frustrating things that and the the erasure of yeah the poet yeah um I really appreciate you coming and joining us and talking about this experience um I know not every museum um has worked with literally sorry literary translators in the past and I'm sure there's museums who are unsure if they will work with literary translators in the future but I hope that they can take away from this podcast um, considerations for translators considerations for copyright and also considerations on how they handle mistakes I think that's some important lessons that the British Museum and all museums can learn from this experience Um, I'm so sorry that you were going through this and that you were continuing to go through this. And I do hope that you can seek a resolution with the British Museum soon. I know that you said that there's some things you can't speak to. And I hope that um, I hope that you come to a a conclusion that is helpful. And I I hope that Chujing's poetry is restored to the exhibition so that it can be shared with visitors. Um, But again, thank you so very much for joining us. This was um, wonderful to to chat with you and I've certainly learned a lot thank you so much I really appreciate it and it's also really nice to talk to the BC Museums Association given you know what's going on with the British Museum and mm-hmm. have some support from like a local kind of museum organization mm-hmm. so I really mm-hmm. do appreciate it thank you Um, Do check out the links in the uh, podcast description. um, And uh, thank you so much for listening to us. Since the recording of this podcast, exciting things have happened that we'd like to share now. I am going to read a statement provided by Yilin. I am happy to announce that the British Museum and I have reached a settlement after they used my translations of Chujin's poetry in China's Hidden Century exhibition without permission, pay, or credit for over a month, and their later action of removing both my translation and Chujin's poetry from their exhibit. On Tuesday, July 11th, very soon after I officially obtained legal representation, thanks to the support of many folks who spread the word and donated to my crowd justice fund, the British Museum's director, Hartwig Fisher, reached out to me to make a proposal essentially matching the reasonable terms that I have proposed to them several times before launching my legal fundraiser. I appreciate that the museum has come around. It is frustrating that this did not happen until I went through all of the trouble to fundraise and obtain legal representation. As a part of the settlement, the British Museum has agreed to reinstate my translation of Chujin's poetry in the exhibition with appropriate credit and professional payment by August 11th, with the exception relating to the projection below. They have also obtained permission from me to create a spotlight page on their website featuring Chujin's poem, A River of Crimson. I am glad that more readers will be able to see my translations with credit given for the first time, and I am glad that more visitors will be able to learn about Chujin's wonderful poetry. There'll be a delay in reinstating the projection of my translation of Chujin's poem, A River of Crimson, at the physical exhibition. 
My translations were originally displayed with incorrect line breaks added without permission. I am still waiting for that to be fixed by the British Museum as much as possible, and I appreciate their ongoing efforts to achieve this. During this settlement process, I also learned that the British Museum currently does not have a policy specifically addressing the clearance of translations. It's very surprising to me that such a large institute does not have such a policy. I hope that the British Museum follows through on their commitment to create a clearance process for translations in the future by the end of this year and to take concrete steps to ensure that the mistake does not happen again. As I mentioned before in my Crowd Justice fundraiser page, I plan to donate 50% or more of the settlement amount I receive to a cause to support translators of Sinophone poetry. The British Museum have agreed to make an additional payment to me matching their license fee payment to enable this. I have reached out to a literary organization to propose a series of translation workshops for and led by BIPOC racialized translators, where at least one workshop will focus on the translation of Sinophone poetry. I hope my donations can help fund a series of workshops with a focus on feminist, queer, and decolonial approaches to translation in honor of Kyujin. I will give more updates about this once it has been arranged. To wrap up, thank you to everyone who has supported me over the past two months, which have been incredibly challenging. Thank you to my lawyers, John Sharples, Amy Gavin, and Alex Watt at Howard Kennedy LLP for all their help. Thank you to everyone who has spread the word on social media, wrote letters, drafted and shared a petition, donated to the fundraiser, and reported on this incident in newspapers, podcasts, or other formats. Thank you to all the friends who supported me behind the scenes, and especially to all the organizers in ACE and Arrow, queer, feminist, academic, speculative fiction writing, and translation communities who stepped up. I could not have done this without you. This incident has showed me the power of the collective and holding institutes accountable. Let this be a lesson for the British Museum and other museums, organizations, and publications that permission must be obtained for the use of copyright translations, and that it's important to always name the translator and pay them professional fees for their work. I'm excited to finally be able to return to working on The Lantern and the Night Moths, a book of poetry translations that I was in the middle of translating when I discovered the British Museum's use of my translations. I look forward to sharing more of Shujin's Furious with you in the future. This is a fantastic outcome, and we want to echo Yilin's sentiment that we hope that the British Museum and all museums can learn from this experience.